I'm all set. Doug Lane, who uh, used to be for many years the editor of Zero Books, uh, where he published stuff uh, like Give Them an Argument, uh, as well as uh, as well as uh, you know Kill All Normies and uh, a a lot of stuff by people like Matt McManus, you know names that you may recognize. Uh, and he's now started a new thing. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Sublation Media. So, uh, and I should also mention that Doug is a writer in his own right. Uh, he has written um, uh, several things, including uh, the novel Bash Bash Revolution. So how are you doing today, Doug? I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. A little... Uh, a little um, a little harried, you know, the, the technology is more challenging than usual this morning, but, uh, um, uh, but I, I am, I'm generally pretty good. Uh, I've been spending a little bit too much time, I think, thinking about the possible end of the world and, uh, you know, I've, I've had the, uh, you know, we'll meet again song from Dr. Strangelove going through my head a little bit too much. So thought that maybe we could take a break from that, uh, from thinking about that (laughs) today. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think about, I'm thinking about it too. I watched War Games with my son the other day, and I then we watched Doctor Strange Love after that. So um, we're going through our own nostalgic look back on the end of the world, and uh, hopefully, we won't get a rerun that that gives us that conclusion instead of uh, right. the yeah. lucky break we got before. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I saw yesterday, I think, um, Joe Biden, uh, who I very rarely have any warm thoughts about, but he, uh, he tweeted, I think almost literally, we're not going to start World War III by going to war with Russia. And the number of comments and the replies, you know, along the lines of, oh, pussy, why, why not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he also say that we're not going to have a nuclear war? Didn't, yeah, didn't yeah, 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 yeah. I think he yeah, literally like, said that. Yeah, and like my feeling is like I thought we were, you know, we left that behind us in '91. I mean, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I am not pleased with uh, the world situation, and I feel like we've all sort of taken our eye off the ball, uh, assuming that that the, uh, well, that the nuclear disarmament was keeping pace and that it was a you know rational process when in fact we've been relying the cold war never ended in a way so it's 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 very disheartening um uh but 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 uh i wanted to talk about other things maybe maybe more optimistically um i'm not sure uh well let's let's uh yeah well, let's let's start with something that I, i expect you're gonna have to be answered a lot in the coming years which is uh what is sublation Okay, what does sublation mean? Um, it is actually not a simple concept, but it literally means to transcend by taking up. Or another way of thinking about it is it means both affirmation and negation at the same time. Um, and if you like, want to think about 
the concept of sublation philosophically, you might turn to Hegel's science of logic. And at the beginning, there's this description of what pure being is. And as, it, as he goes along describing pure being, pure, you know, positive presence, undifferentiated, it turns out that it is nothing. So um, that that is a the, the gives you the the sense of kind of the dialectical, contradictory nature of sublation. It's where you you transcend and realize through negation and uh, taking up at the same time. So you like you preserve something while getting beyond it. Um, okay, uh, is there a <laughs> You preserve something while getting beyond it. So, what would be a what would be an example of that? Well, I can give you an example of it in theory, right? I can say, okay, well, like the aim of socialism would be to transcend uh, and and negate um, modern capitalist relations, while holding on to and affirming both the positive productive power of work and uh, technological advancement, right? Oh, well. But but that almost sounds like we want our cake and we're going to eat it too. Um, so um, the, another way I think about sublation is through uh, the, the the question of like the, the nuclear family mm-hmm. today. As um, the, I think about the dialectical fact of the nuclear family as something that is like Christopher Lash wrote about as a haven in a heartless world, a realm of personal intimacy and, and meaning. Um, and at the same time, uh, it can be incredibly oppressive and um, backwards and uh, even a realm of abuse. And, um, and, you know, people who Focused on the family tend to be uh, right. quite conservative, uh, and also it's in a state of decay. Um, and what Christopher Lash points out is that the fact that the family is cherished and it's like a haven um, is a product of the alienation of society and the kind of failure of society. So if you wanted to sublate the family or go beyond the family, you'd want to. You would, you would not want to give up on the on alienation entirely. You wouldn't want to create a situation where you were completely immersed in a, uh, a communal society, but you would want to uh, transform the public world uh, so that um, it was it was more accessible. People would more democratic. People had more control. Uh, over their public lives, mm-hmm. um, the, and it was not so heartless, um, and that would, without giving up on the desire for, uh, let's say, long-term um, romantic relationships like marriage or uh, the the connection that parents and children feel for each other, uh, or even extended family connection and the importance of that wouldn't give up on those things you just transform them by transforming uh the the public realm 
um, recontextualizing the family. Okay. So I think I know what you mean by that, but I'm not 100%. Uh, like, well, usually people think they're like, okay, they think in terms of the family, they'll think, oh, well, we need to eliminate the family. We need uh-huh. to we need to uh, negate the family. Um, if you sublate the family, you're not going to eliminate it. You'll preserve it, but you'll you'll also transcend it. You'll also take it, take it. You it will no longer be the kind of institution that it is now. It won't have the same place, and, and it won't be the haven in a heartless world. The context for it will change. Okay. So. So the claim in this case, and this is actually this is actually useful because I think that um, this is a uh, like there's certain kinds of classical Marxist rhetoric about the family that like I always just kind of cringe at because like I don't it it, it sort of it always seems it always feels like. Um, I'm not sure what that means. I suspect that whatever it means could be put in a way that's like way less pointlessly alienated than than say that, you know, Mm. like using formulations that make it sound like, you don't like families, you know, like, like, I don't, I don't, I don't never really got the point of that, but like, um, it, it seems like, I mean, part of the oddity of this is if you think like, if you think about like, families in the 19th century versus now there's a certain sense in which um, like we've already abolished family relationships as they existed then right like that they they, they, you know um, that like legally it's a very different institution now you know it's it's much more egalitarian uh, and uh, even even social expectations, you know, have have relaxed have relaxed a lot, right? So, I think what you're saying about further transformations that would happen in a socialist future is something like um, that. And um, earlier, I was about to make an obnoxious joke about how, like, rephrasing this in Hegelian terms didn't actually make it clearer. But the uh, but like now, now I'm just trying to be earnest about this and follow the thread. So like they have a, so I think that that means that, um, that people, once the economic relationships are transformed, then people are just going to sort of like inevitably make different choices about how they relate to families over time. Right. There'll be less pressure on the family to be the only site of meaning. Mm-hmm life um and there'll be more freedom for everyone probably but certainly for let's say uh, women and, and probably children as well um there, there 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 won't be it won't be an economic category in the mm-hmm. um so like inheritance won't be an issue right um, so you know there there are a lot of things we can negate um, and, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what it will look like, but what I would say is what we won't want to abandon is, like, long-term commitments and responsibility for each other, uh, you know, the, the responsibility for our offspring, um, uh, kind of private, intimate 
life, you know, all of that will be something that will still be valued, will still be taken up. Um, we won't trade it in for a total independence and, and a total alienation, but, you know, it just takes place in, their, in a different context. Another example might be... Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just... I would but, just think, I mean, just, just to just to put a cap on that a bit, I would just think that um, given less economic pressure, you just get more variety. That um, that like because people would be, you know, people would be making choices about family relationships for more purely emotional reasons or based on what felt meaningful to them, and so you know, you probably would get. Um, I think you'd probably get like everything from like you know hyper traditionalist families to like more people who are like just experimenting with, with like weird shit you know who are like you know living in uh um you know living in uh you know polyamorous wiccan communes or whatever to you know to like some some form of like experiment about child rearing that like uh that I'm not creative enough to imagine right now like just because yeah. Yeah, I tend to think that all these different alternatives that we can imagine, like I don't know, yeah. a polyamorous commune or something, um, are arising within capitalism and sort of are shaped by the same forces that are shaping the nuclear family. Like the so-called alternatives are 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 kind of still of the same system. So, like you know, you know what? So the the kinds of difficulties you might find in a, I don't know some polyamorous commune. Um, are similar to the kinds of difficulties you find in a nuclear family, really, because they're still like the these havens from the public uh, world that's alienating and the world realm of work and and politics and history and this sort of private cut off, uh, inconsequential in some way um, realm. Uh, exists and, and and unless it doesn't, in which case you know it's infected by the economic uh, imperatives of of the broader society and people get, which is what happens, I think, you know, in families they get, you know, whether it's a matter of the social ills of the neighborhood you're in or yeah. the economic imperatives uh, that you're facing, um, uh, the, you families crack up under the pressure from a public world that doesn't um, you know, that doesn't provide people with a lot of freedom or, or, or power uh, for the most part. Right. Um, so, so maybe, so maybe from your perspective, what we should really just say is that uh, you know, probably the sorts of family arrangements that people will choose to have lacking those pressures will be, you know, different in some ways from the range of choices that people are making right now, but probably in principle, you can't predict how they'll be different in advance. Right. I mean, I, I tend to think, and this is, I, I don't know if I'm being strictly Hegelian here, but I tend to think that this idea of sublation is um, one where you take both sides of a problem and see how they're working together in a, in a broader context. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the question of, like, should we abolish the family and, and, and get rid of these patriarchal institutions, or do we need to defend the family? And it's like, the, 
the, the, to try to sublate that, you say, so what is it that is setting up patriarchal power uh, as, as we know it now, and, and what are we defending the family from if we want to defend it? And it, you will you usually find this sort of broader context which is driving the social problems that are dealt with in one or the other way, like defend the family, abolish the family. There's sort of two solutions for one larger social Problem. Um, right. And, and so I think in order to sublate something or transcend it, you have to transcend um, uh, the usual way of one-sided way of looking at a problem. Uh, well, the problem is the family itself; therefore, we should abolish it. The problem is the decadent, you know, uh, society of of uh, self-indulgence and narcissism. So we need to protect the family. Neither one of those things are uh, adequate. Task of transcending the problem that we that has arisen around the family. And another yeah, example and, 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 and both and both of those are and both of those are like both of those are like it seems like might suffer from the assumption that like what you should do is something that directly has to do with family arrangements. With like it could be that I mean, look, without being like unacceptably authoritarian, there's really nothing much that you could do that's directly about family relationships if people are choosing to you know have relationships that are, you know, too patriarchal or, or, you know, or too alienated and, you know, whatever, like the opposite is, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do, you know, but like you can change the economic conditions under which they're making those choices. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I got a phone call that came in, so I had to, Swipe down. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I heard the um, I heard the last thing you said. Well, I would say like, yeah, you can't change those relationships. But the other thing is, oddly, like the state can't help but do things all the time about the family, right? Like uh -huh. constantly being addressed. So like, there are always going to be questions about divorce laws and property rights and child protection, and right? Parental right. rights and the, the like the. There's, you're almost compelled to keep doing things about the, the family. And uh, and if you want to do something that will sublate the problem, then you may have to do something that isn't directly about the family in the context of, of there being tons of policies about the family, tons of way, attempts to address the problem. The, the, um, the other thing that I would bring up is like, uh, an example of sublation has to do with um, kind of individual, uh, limited, let's call it bourgeois freedom that arose as the working class arose. Uh -huh. These feudal relationships where people were in roles in society that were defined at birth, and they would know what kind of jobs they were going to do um, based on who they were and what, what kind of family they were born into. And um, now we, we have much more independence and freedom. Uh, we're self-made in, in a way that we weren't before. And yet, you know, there's still a, an entire class of people who have nothing to sell but their labor and, uh, you know, are exploited and limited. Um, yeah. And if we wanted to sublate that freedom, oh, that, that problem, the wage relations, say, we don't do yeah. it by saying, okay, we're going to go back to everyone having their, the, the role that, you know, is assigned to them at birth or 
Um, we don't want to get rid of the kind of freedom that we that exists now, but we want to see what the context is in which it gets limited. So we want to hold on to the bourgeois freedom and then sublate it by transcending it um, even through an affirmation of it. Um, that's, that would be sub sublation. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that actually does make sense. Okay, so let me... Um, uh, if anybody wants to wants to call in and ask uh, ask a question, go ahead and get in the queue, uh, and we'll we'll try to take at least one or two calls before we go. But uh, first, I want to switch gears because I know uh, I know you've been thinking about Guy Debord. What, uh, what what's on your mind there? Well, I've been reading his books, Side of the Spectacle, again. I, I it's one of the first really Marxist books I ever read, mm-hmm. um, and for a long time it probably was the only Marxist book I ever read. Uh, that and the revolution of everyday life, which is coming out of the same group, the Situationist International. Um, and I've returned to it now that I've sort of more well versed in Marxism. I've kind of returned to it again and again, but I'm making a series of videos about um, the book. And what I've done is started at the last chapter and then I'm working my way backwards, reading each chapter forwards, not, not reading every word backwards or reading the chapter backwards, but reading the chapters out of order and then making a video to summarize them. And the, the main thing that um, I'm walking away with here is that this is about, this book is about the, the notion of the spectacle as an attempt to explain actually why it is that socialist politics and the struggle for communism um, has reached a dead end, and what is it? What happens ideologically in capitalist society that limits people's ability to participate in freedom? Uh, you know, in history, and have the freedom to change their historical conditions, and um, and you know, a lot of the time people read society the spectacle. And focus on, you know, how the media uh, is brainwashing people and we have false desires because of consumerism and, um, you know, we have uh, images of our lives uh, that are sold to us that are um, maybe uh, false and, you know, conformist and, but the what i'm as i'm reading the book again the main thing is not so much that we um have the wrong kinds of desires uh but that we have uh, we live in a world in which uh we are always assuming that what is now is can is the limit to what we can desire it's a limit to what our politics can be that we have to operate within a uh, a world that is set for the most part we just sort of are passive spectators of history rather than uh, getting to shape it and if we and if we do shape it we shape it by ratifying one or another decision that's that's already within the this context of the, the social order as it is um uh, and you know, he, 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 he at the end of the book he describes people under capitalism as basically being 
narcissistically catatonic, um, totally absorbed in their own private realm um, and cut off from history and, and uh, one another. Um, uh, and I find it, like, even though I, I can critique Parkwood as a Marxist um, and there are reasons to be skeptical about his vision, it does seem like he's maybe not prescribing the right things all the time, and he's certainly not always explaining the causation of this predicament perfectly. Uh-huh. But as just a, as a description of what it feels like to live in uh, an undercapitalism in a kind of modern media or information society, he um, is nailing it. So I guess what I would say is I would recommend the book um, that needs to be read again critically. Um, and people should tune in to my videos about this subject. <laughs> but have you ever, have you experienced or read much of Gita Board or the Situationist? Uh, a little bit a very long time ago. I remember being really, getting really interested for a while in, um, like, uh, decades ago in, um, like May 1968, and I was reading like Daniel Cohn Bendit and stuff like that, and and so I think I, I think I ran into it a little bit around there. I know I read some kind of situationist literature at that time, although I actually don't think I read Society of the Spectacle. Right. Um, well, Daniel Cohn Bendit was not a member of the Situationist, but he was certainly an important leader in May 68. I think he was at Nanterre originally. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of the student movement there, and uh, became a major figure uh, in May. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, I, I was just kind of reaching for that as something I remember reading that was related. But I, I feel like, I feel like at the same time that I was doing that, there was some kind of situationist pamphlet or something that was put out by the SI that I, I did, uh, I did read as as part of that. But I'm I'm not like I I feel. I feel like I have a really hazy idea of what, uh, of what some of that might've been about. Uh, but I guess, and, and in some ways, right. I mean, I think it's something that like, I'm, um, you know, like I, I think I've got like, whatever hazy idea that I do have in my head. I mean, I think I've, I've got some instinctive hostility to it for the same, you know, for kind of the same reasons as like, I remember um, reading this story about, uh, about, um, you know, Timothy Leary, you know, before the weathermen broke him out of prison when, you know, there were other like political people in prison who were trying to, you know, get him to be involved in various things that were going on in prison and, you know, Leary would just be like, ah, you know, no, man, you know, the real revolution's inside your head. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, <laughs> and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, what the situation is all about is the, you know, is the, like, radical socialist transformation of the society around them. But, I mean, it, 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 the vibe that I get is always a little bit too much, like, you know, what's supposed to get people to, to do this is, like, having, like, a you know, existential crisis about the, 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 uh, the emptiness of modern life or something like that. And that, that just, that just always felt a little bit, you know, innately implausible to me. Right. Okay. So I think that that is how he, the, the work has been transformed and understood, 
you know, since the 20th century and, you know, in like since 68, right? It's uh-huh. been sort of transformed into a work about being brainwashed and about being free as an individual and, and, uh, uh, it, you know, kind of, it, it's associated with a, a kind of art movements like surrealism and Dadaism. Mm-hmm. And it had, it does draw on those traditions. Um, but it's important to realize that it was a countless Marxist project that wanted to transform society and was not allergic at all to political action. Like it wasn't, the situationists were involved in setting up the conditions that led to May of 1968 and did work for strikes. They, they helped organize students um, at Nanterre in 1967 and created a political scandal around a publication in 67. Yeah. And they, and they, they had campus, uh, uh, I would say allies. They weren't, they weren't really cells or anything uh, uh, from the situation on campus exactly, but there were these sympathetic students. Um, and they were influential in, in shaping the thinking of, um, of the students in, in May of 68. But, um, but, you know, they were also for that part of the failure of 68, for sure. And I think the fact that they could be transformed into, you know, something like, oh, well, change the society within your mind, uh-huh. uh, you know, in the popular imagination does point to a problem with their, with their work. But um, if you, if you try to take the value from it, mm-hmm. find what's good about it, um, it does have to do with, I mean, the best, the best thing to remember is that it's coming out of a, a Hegelian Marxist <laughs> tradition. Uh-huh. Um, they wanted to, they wanted to negate art as they realized it. They were sublating the art world was one of their aims, right? Like to say, we want to eliminate the category of art as something outside of the social world and yet realize the uh, beauty and aesthetics and personal expression of art through our productive work and through a society which allows people to make their own lives and their own communities and productive work into yeah. a kind of art. Um, uh, but that's the most like, that's the most hippy dippy aspect of what they were uh, about. I mean, they were, let's say, counselors or anti-Bolshevik uh, Marxists. Um, and uh, what, what I think that they were really good at is pointing out the need to to go beyond pseudo politics or one-sided politics and try to uh, take hold of of uh, the social conditions in, in their in their totality, and they, their vision was like, you know, what they'll do that by organizing workers' councils, which will take over from the current bourgeois state, yeah. and you know, be a civil war, and you know, that was their their thought. It wasn't just that people would become more altruistic or find their inner child or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I feel like I sort of understand both, both aspects of that. Right. So that, um, the, you know, the idea 
that you're going to have a you know socialist revolution forming because of like waves of you know workers councils and uh and all that uh you know i i think um whatever criticisms that i might have of the you know the plausibility of that or 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 anything like that i mean i i sort of like if somebody says that i kind of I feel like I understand how they think in broad brushes that's going to work. Um, and I could also sort of get the other half, the artistic half. Uh, and, and some of what you're saying earlier, right. You know, is this, this idea that uh, people are, are kind of trapped in these worlds of, uh, of, of private consumption and, you know, you're, you're not going to, um, I don't know. You know, you want to, you know, you want to sit around watching Netflix because, uh, cause you're not going to, you know, because you, you don't have, uh, you know, you can't like creatively, you know, reshape the world around you or something like that. Like I, I, I feel like I can understand both of those claims, but I'm not, I'm a little less sure about how I understand what the link between those claims is supposed to be. In other words, like, is it, is it just that, you know, people do, um, you know, like people make revolution for exactly the reasons that like some council communist in 1918 would think that they would make revolution and they're just kind of describing the spiritual benefits of it. Right. Or, or is it, is there a sense in which people are, are realizing these sorts of spiritual benefits and, and that's why they're doing it? Well, I mean, there, so this is where I think I, I have to be critical of the, of the book a bit um, because I think the central idea uh, that was not just in the, it's not really, I, I don't think they would describe it as their central idea, but it was like in the background of, of the Marxist left and the socialist left after World War II um, during the Fordist period. Uh, so the, the main idea is that the kinds of contradictions and problems, and primarily maybe the problem of immiseration, had been overcome. Uh, that the you know the, the consumer society had arisen along with state monopolies and, or state capitalism, um, and whether you're talking about the Soviet Union or the United States, you still in either case you had a state managed economy uh-huh. where the the problems that would arise from market competition um, could be overcome through management. So we weren't going to be headed towards prices. So working class wouldn't have uh, direct material reasons to be in conflict with the bosses, but rather um, they would simply be forced to continue to be servants to this capital system and to be passive uh, participants in history rather than um, active shapers of history. So. You know, they, they would still be basically in a subservient role, cut off from their true creative potential as workers who are, are actually shaping the physical world. Um, it would be an unequitable, you know, unequal society, a cla- class-based society, but not I one where a few words there. Um, it would be an unequal and class-based society still mm-hmm. after after the state capitalist system you know, took hold and the managers could regulate everything, it would still be a class society. It just would be one that wasn't driven towards crisis and contradiction 
it wasn't going to drive people into um, a revolutionary uh, struggle, um, except, you know, well, there were still some contradictions, but they were they were on the level of um, desire and on the level of uh, false promises made by uh, the spectacular images and like, you know, rather than having a life, you had a vacation from your life and things like that. Um, but obviously that all of that idea that we had overcome the major contradictions economically that could arise is, was false. I mean, we, the, that was within like six years of the society spectacle being written, it was clear that there were, that the, the states and Fordism weren't going to be able to keep capitalism running uh, at full profit and mm-hmm. without crisis. So, um, yeah, because because it like because what you're describing does, I have to say, like sound a lot like um, people are going to you know like almost like we're imagining a bunch of people sort of um, having going through like some existential crisis that like somebody might like, a you know, in a Mad Men episode or something. And then, uh, and then at the end of that, right, you know, once that like, once they've had their epiphany, you know, then like they, they become a council communist and they start building barricades. Uh, and, you know, right. and, you know, like, right. and you, so if you, like, you look at May 68 and ask, you know, what, what was it that drove that, moment to become a general strike with 7 million Frenchmen and women on, uh, you know, out on the streets rather than at work. And um, it did start with dissatisfaction amongst the students with mm-hmm. the life that they were being offered and the future that they were being sold and the desire for the uh, realization of, of freedom that they were being promised, uh, you know, that, but couldn't experience. Um, you know, it's down to like Daniel Compenay wanted to get rid of the um, uh, in local parentis rules right. at university, <laughs> right? Um, you know, he wanted to change. He wanted to be more free to, to get laid, amongst other things. And um, a and lot it of turned, the, it turned out that uh, French capitalist society was much more able to accommodate that than he could have imagined. Right, exactly. That's true. Um, but uh, they also, uh, the, the working class students at Nanterre looked ahead of the, to a future in the factory if they were lucky, because there was a bit of a recession then, but not, not a mm-hmm. scale that we think of now. And they were being held out of the workforce, you know, in the uh, universities that really weren't going to get them anything more than factory work in a long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they were dissatisfied with their futures as well. Um, and uh, so there, I mean, it's not as though people's personal desires and ambitions weren't shaping the unrest of 68. Um, but it's also true that, you know, the, the, a lot of the young workers who were involved were working in terrible conditions and were poor, and there were not a lot of immigrants uh, mm-hmm. who were participating in, in the '68 strike. Um, so even at the mo- in that moment, the idea that it was just the spectacle that was being overturned and yeah. against 
the workplace conditions and pretty standard material workers' demands was questionable. Um, but uh, I feel as though for people who are already consciously socialist, uh-huh. like they, that the Society of the Spectacle is a useful book. It's not like a useful book predicting what will cause revolution, but it is a right. useful book to say, okay, what is socialism about and why and, and this this critique of capitalist society even at its best does point us at what socialism is ultimately about like how it's a matter of sublating bourgeois freedom rather than just making sure everyone gets three square meals a day oh yeah that's actually a really good sales pitch for me because uh i mean certainly that last sentence speaks to you know like definitely speaks to my interests and and i also think that like there's something that i've been um struggling to articulate lately like if if you read the uh the new issue of uh uh current affairs i have a i have a review of uh francis buffard's book red plenty in there where i talk about this a little bit at the very end uh that like there's there's a sort of, you know, if you think about like all of the things that like Marx seems to have had in mind when he talked about socialism or communism, um, there's like, and what sort of normative goals are, are involved there. Like some of that, you know, like there's this phrase in the communist manifesto about the, uh, you probably know, you probably remember better than I do, but it's something like the free development of each being conditioned by the, you know, free development of all. And, and, um, and I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which the, the free development of each part is sort of the easy part, right? In other words, like not, not to achieve, you know, but like, uh, but to, to conceptualize, right. What we're talking about, you know, that, uh, there's in some ways this goes back to the conversation we were having about families, at the beginning of the episode, uh, that, uh, that what were, uh, that, uh, that in societies with different economic conditions, you know, people are more free to, you know, to sort of live their lives as they, as they want to live them. And, and they're not driven by economic pressures and, um, and, you know, like there are some core Marxist things here about, um, sort of getting to, you know, getting to kind of pursue projects of your own choosing and, you know, instead of things that you have to do to survive, you know, to work. Uh, and that's all sort of straight, you know, in a sense, sort of straightforward, right? You know, <laughs> implementation details are hard. Uh, but uh, the free development of all part, I think, is is something that's, like, really important, but, like, a little bit harder to articulate, which is, like, this sense that, like, part of what, like, socialism means is that there's a, some sort of, like, social control over the overall direction of of society that the uh that uh that there's you know that instead of just sort of being like buffeted around by uh you know by market forces and the way that people you know um you know and and you know, in the way that like people mean when they say like, okay, you know, even under capitalism, even capitalist bosses, you know, are in a sense in charge, but in a sense they're not in charge, right? You know, because they're just being pushed around by the same market imperatives as everybody else. Uh, that you know, instead of being pushed around by these blind forces, that there's there's some sort of, you know, collective uh, 
social direction. And I, I think like articulating what exactly would count as, uh, as having that kind of social direction uh, is at least to my mind, maybe it's a, maybe it's a block on my part, like really hard, but I mean, I think there is intuitively definitely something there. Um, so yeah. I, and I, I feel like some of the situationist stuff might be, might be getting at that lack, right? Not just the sort of like um, individual unfreedom of like, you know, you have to like go to work instead of like doing what you want to do with your life, you know, but like, um, but that, that like that they, that you're put into this private sphere, you know, precisely because you're, you know, like you're blocked from having some kind of collective control over the world around you. Yeah. I mean, I think that this, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning as maybe an ex- a, a way to conceive of, uh, ne- negatively conceive of like the limits of, on, on our social control. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that we are still stuck in a cold war situation uh-huh. between competing, uh, national powers, and I'm going to go ahead and say competing imperial powers. Obviously, the United States right, has right. expanded as an imperial power than Russia or any other nation. But the fact that this is going on and that the ultimate card that any major power can play is the annihilation of the human race uh-huh. uh, tells you that we are operating in, in a world of unfreedom. That, you know, that there are, uh, that where our, our options are incredibly constrained, violently constrained. Um, and a socialist world would be one in which the, that kind of, uh, violent coercive restraint on the collective will would not be possible. Um, and when we think about how we want to respond to Ukraine, to the Ukraine crisis, to the invasion of Ukraine and, and NATO's expansion and provo- provocations, we need to think about how we would start a process of sublating our, our world system in, so that we would be f- free uh, in both individually and, and socially. Right. Well, you brought it back to World War Three after all. Uh, so, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Uh, so, so to anybody listening, uh, who, who had, I'm actually not a hundred percent right now. If there's anybody who is in the, who had been in the queue to, uh, uh, to call in the app has been weird for me today. So if you were, my apologies for that, uh, please call in on Tuesday when we do this again and I will, um, I will try to take your calls, you know, right away. Uh, but, um, but I know we both have uh, have commitments right now, so uh, yeah. so thank you, thank you so much for your uh, for your time, Doug. And uh, where I just want to plug my YouTube channel. Go to yep. find Doug Lane L A I N on YouTube, and look for our books. We're going to be publishing books. We're going to have a magazine. Sublation Media is happening. So uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, always. All right. All right. Thanks, Doug. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.